Uh, last week we looked at this story of this guy being lowered through the roof in Mark chapter 2. Uh, today we're coming toward the end of the Gospels. We're moving to John 16. These kind of bounce around a bit. Um, but narratively, we're, we're moving with God toward the crucifixion and then uh, on Easter, the resurrection. So today we're at John 16, which comes toward the end of Jesus' ministry. And it's actually during the Last Supper, I'll talk about that um, in a moment. But let me read this. Our, uh, this morning, we usually like to have members of our congregation read, but our scripture reader last minute had to call in sick. There's a lot of that going around. So I'm sorry for you that are experiencing that at home. And we pray for you, especially during spring break and things like that. So I'll read for us. This is from the J.B. Phillips. And um, you can follow on the screen or you can have a Bible open in your lap on an app, whatever you prefer. Um, so John 16, starting in verse 1. I'm telling you this now so that your faith in me may not be shaken. They will excommunicate you from their synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when a man who kills you will think he is thereby serving God. They will act like this because they have never had any true knowledge of the Father or of me. But I told you all this so that when the time comes for it to happen, you may remember that I told you about it. I've not spoken like this to you before because... I've been with you, but now the time has come for me to go away to the one who sent me. I assure you, it's a good thing for you that I should go away. If I didn't go away, the divine helper would not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll guide you into everything that is true. For he will not be speaking of his own accord, but exactly what he hears. And he will inform you about what's to come. He'll bring glory to me. He'll draw my truth and reveal to you. Whatever the Father possesses is also mine. That is why I tell you that he will draw my truth and will show it to you. And then now, verse 16, in a little while you will not see me any longer. And again, in a little while you will see me. At this, some of the disciples remarked to each other, what is this that he tells us now? A little while you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me. And for I'm going away to the Father. What is this little while? That he talks about. We simply do not know what he means. And Jesus knew they wanted to ask him what he meant, so he said to them, are you trying to find out from each other what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll not see me, and again, in a little while you will see me. I tell you the truth, you're going to both be sad and sorry while the world is glad. Yes, you'll be deeply distressed, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman gives birth to a child, she certainly knows pain when her time comes. Yet as soon as she's given birth to the child, she'll no longer remember for her agony, uh, her agony for her joy, for joy that the child has been born into the world. Now you're going through pain, but I shall see you again and your hearts will thrill with joy, joy that no one can take away from you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment to um, pause and pray. God, thank you for um, this word from Jesus, who we... uh, With the Spirit and you, Father, um, we stand before, we sit before, and we ask you to uh, minister to us uh, this promise of the Spirit being our helper, our guide. We ask you, Spirit, to to be our help this morning in this space. Um, Many of us have brought heaviness and sorrow with us, just like the disciples, and so we're wondering, God, how, how you might meet us in that. Some of us are very joyful, like the very end of this passage, and 
we're anticipating things. And so we ask you also, Spirit, to minister to us in that. Whatever space we're in, God, would you meet us now and be our teacher, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, to kind of uh, frame this passage, I'll, I'll come around to it, you'll see, but um, this idea of longevity and happiness, I kind of want to uh, riff on this a little bit. It's this increasingly popular topic these days. I, like a lot of people asking, how can I live long and how can I live well? We got this um, National Geographic. We have, we're that family with like, you know, the shelf full of them. Yeah, a lot of you. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. I love looking at them. But this one was from November 2017. The cover article is entitled, The Search for Happiness, What We Can Learn from Costa Rica, Denmark, and Singapore, the Most Joyful Places on the Planet. How many of you read this article? Or some of you, yeah. And uh, the story was about those places, and all three of those places are what are so-called blue zones. There's a book that they published talking about this, where people are experiencing these markedly higher qualities of life because of certain unconventional values or factors, things like quality social connections, generosity, trust, things like that, that these researchers have found are leading to longer lifespans and more fulfilled lives. Interestingly, um, while I was living back in Pennsylvania before moving back to Seattle here, um, there was a blue zone, a so-called blue zone, about 50 years ago in a place called Rosetta, or Rosetta, Pennsylvania, that I actually got to visit, a little town in the um, kind of the uh, Appalachian, uh, the kind of the sleep belt of Pennsylvania, and not a place you'd expect to be a poster child for longevity. Uh, if you've been to Eastern Pennsylvania or Rosetto, you'd know it's this really hard scrabble town, um, literally built into the rocky hillsides there of the sleep belt. People work hard, they're salty, the culture is quite literally gritty. It's just a strange place to think of as a happy place. And, um, and yet studies of Rosetto have shown that virtually no one at the time of those studies, this is about 50 years ago, I said, uh, under the age of 55 were dying of heart attacks. And like for men over 65, the death rate from heart disease was actually about half the United States average at this time. Um, In fact, the death rate in Rosetta at this time of all causes was about 35% lower than the U.S. average. So people were healthy, despite the fact that they cooked with lard, smoked chronically, and just worked long, long, long hours in very hard labor. Um, they were, in terms of blue zone research, living surprisingly fulfilled lives. There was no suicide in the town, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, very little crime, nobody on welfare. They were just, as this uh, one author puts it, simply, when the time came, dying of old age. That's it. And so it posed this question, why was Rosetto so unique, like an outlier? What was it that the people were doing in this community that led to such longevity? And the answer the researchers curious about this uh, in this community found is that it lay in the fact that Rosetto and the Rosetto people were committed to a surprisingly unorthodox way or at least unconventional way of life according to our cultural terms. Uh, They had brought in from Italy where many of them immigrated from first generation uh, Pesani culture, which I'm not sure if I'm getting that quite right, but it's in Italy, this culture of, of, of community. So visiting each other daily, kind of just having a practice around that, stopping to chat with each other, in Italian, in the streets, cooking for each other, like we do. We do meals ministry here, but just doing that as a daily thing, maintaining these strong extended family connections. Like they, they found three generations of families living in the same household, which to us sounds like a horror movie, but to them is like a secret to happiness, right? And, and thus this vital and deeply interwoven social structure developed. The church in Rosetta, Rosetta was central to the community, not peripheral, right in the center of town. 
And they found that there were about 22 civic organizations in this town, and the town was 2,200 people at its apex. Think about that. <laughs> and so um, the Rosettans, you could say, were healthy because where they were from, uh, the culture they created for themselves, and because of their commitment to these unconventional set of practices. And this became something called the Rosetto Effect, um, this phenomenon that's got incredible application for our lives and our faiths. Um, in other words, there are certain unconventional, unorthodox ways of cultivating faithfulness that Jesus invites us to pursue and embrace. Um, and we see them right here in John 16. So here's the context. Like I said, Last Supper, he's preparing the disciples for their final days together. And then the crucifixion, they're going to have to witness that. And then beyond that, they're going to face persecution, as he says. And they're all going to die horrible deaths. And uh, so the question that poses to us is, if, you're ask, if I'm one of the disciples, is how am I going to live faithfully and well when those are the realities of my life? Death, suffering, loss. Like, how am I going to endure, live long, live well with hope, faith, joy, peace, all these things Jesus has preached? They had conventional ways of doing that. For example, in verses 16 to 19, this little humorous dialogue where they're like going around this phrase, in a little while, I just find that hilarious um, because they want a chronology. They want to know when, how, and where things are going to unfold. They want to come up with a game plan. They're classic guys. They want to assess the risk, mitigate against it, limit their exposure to loss, all those things. And yet Jesus says that's not going to lead to sustainable faith. Uh, Faithfulness cannot be realized by just locking it in. Faithfulness will not be found through memorizing and obeying tightly bound sets of doctrine. It's not about getting it right, right in quotes. Uh, Instead, faithfulness and longevity is a byproduct of a commitment to a set of completely unconventional practices and mindsets. In other words, Jesus is saying you need to learn to live outside the box of your own religion. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to, with Jesus, um, explore these unconventional realities that he presents to them and see how they might inform our lives, okay? And here are the three. The the outline in the bulletin is a typo, as always. So here there are three, always three. I have four. That's wrong. And they're out of order. So if you're a note-taker, you can change that, or you can have your own. And here are the three. You or we need help. This is the first uh, reality we need to embrace. We need help, verses 13 to 15. Trouble and failure will happen. They're they're promised, verse 20a. (laughs) And then the last one is joy will be discovered through sorrow, verses 20b through 24. So you need help, trouble's going to happen, joy is discovered through sorrow, okay? And I'll kind of bring us back to each of those as we go. So first, here's the first reality that we need to embrace, the reality that we need help. Jesus says, it's a good thing I'm going away. If I didn't go away, the divine helper, spirit, would not come to you. So Jesus is revealing that the Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit's called a counselor, a helper, which may or may not be helpful to us. For many of us, we bristle against this notion of help. Like we're taught and conditioned from a very early age to be self-sufficient people. We like the idea that we can help ourselves. We don't want help from others. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I don't need help, right, is our heart's mantra, declaration. We're proud of it. We're taught to cultivate that, right? Am I right? So this idea that Jesus is suggesting we need help and that a helper is coming is strange, arcane. It's, it bristle, we bristle against it. For some of us, it might be helpful, though. Like, we, we've come to the end of our resources. We, we, have, we know we need help. We're not our own saviors. But we have no concept of what help from the Spirit might look like. 
we think of it like we agree it's true. Uh, we can't do faith alone, but our, when our hope wanes, our confidence in God's goodness is mercurial. We just have no, con- we don't know how to receive that help and how to get that help. So here's the question for both of you. <laughs> what might it look like to submit yourself to or receive the help of God that Jesus is talking about? Well, interestingly, Jesus offers a bit of a job description for the spirit here, which I just think is powerful. He calls the spirit our helper and then says this, the spirit's job in John 16, is to guide us in the truth, reveal to us what's to come, and glorify Jesus. I just love how concrete that is. Guide us in the truth, reveal, us, reveal to us what's to come, and glorify Jesus. That's what help from God looks like. The summary of which is, is this. Jesus is saying the work of the Spirit is to take what you know to be true and make it real. And here's, that, here's why. The word glory, just key in on that last one. Guide you in the truth, reveal what's real, or what's to come, Glorify Jesus. The word glory in Greek is this word weight or substance. You've heard me talk about this before. It it actually means heavy. And so Jesus is saying the work of the Spirit is to make Jesus and the Father heavy to you. In other words, their words, their character, their work, make it real, make it substantial, like you're carrying a backpack, fill it up with meaning, okay? In other words, uh, take what you know to be true, all the things you've heard about God from uh, Jesus and your previous experience of God, his activity in your life, in our world, his, the truth of his love for you, the reality of his presence in your life, all those things, the hope of God's healing. The Spirit's job is to take those things and, and make what you know to be true about God real, make them actually matter. And that is our problem in your life and my life. And the reason help is so hard to wrap our heads around is the truth is not real to us. The truth is, never, is not real to most of us. I'll just say this. came across this old sermon way back in the like, 19th century by Jonathan Edwards that illustrates this. He's talking about a time when one Sunday, it was actually Easter Sunday, up in his pul- pulpit, and if you know much about Easter, you get a lot of people that come back to church a couple times a year, Christmas and Easter. So he's looking at his congregation, and this is in the Northeast, so kind of very nominal Christianity looks at his church and says to himself, what's the difference today? Lots of, my church is so full of people between the nominal religious person who's here and then the faithful person who's been here all year, like a lot of you. <laughs> and uh, what's the difference between those who are thriving in their faith and then those who are just kind of limping along? And he says, this is him having a conversation with himself, uh, the, tr- the, 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 the difference is the truth is not real to some of these people. So here's the example he gives. Everybody in this town in this time believes in the concept of heaven. By the way, majority of people in America today, 85% believe in the concept of heaven. We think we've become more secular. It's not true. Um, the vast majority of people today in America believe in a heaven. They, they actually expect to go to heaven. This is why they come to church on Christmas and Easter. So Edward says, here are all these people. They believe in heaven. They, they come to church to hear me talk about it and assure them of it and reinforce their belief in it. And, and um, we're going to see this in spades in a couple Sundays. And... Edward says, here's the problem. It's not, but heaven's not real to them. Because if it was real to them, they would be incredibly generous, like with their time and their resources. Um, but they're crippled by scarcity mindsets. And this is, by the way, in the 19th century. And they're, they're anxious there's never going to be enough to go around. He goes on to say that these wonderful people, <laughs> church-going people, if they believed in heaven, they'd, they'd live fearless lives. They'd be joyful. And yet they're deeply afraid there's political turmoil then, just like now. They, they're anxious about the future. They're even afraid of death. So he says in his sermon, 
Yeah, these people believe in heaven, but they don't know the truth of heaven. It's not spiritually real to them. They have no concept of it on their hearts. They just have a a sense of it in their heads, but the weight of heaven has not penetrated into their hearts, into their lives. It's just vague and it's misty. Um, And that's the problem. And so here's the application into our lives from John 16. Jesus is saying the difference between a person who knows how to live well and live long and who's who's facing suffering uh, it, it, person, a person who's just limping along in that reality or a person who's living well in that reality. The difference is, it's not so much what you believe about the truth, it's whether or not the Spirit of God, the Helper, has shown you the glory of the truth, has, has said, this is what's true, and actually penetrated your heart with that truth. Whatever that truth is, it might be heaven. More commonly, it's the efficacy of prayer, that your prayers are actually making a difference. The promise of peace that peace is actually surrounding your heart, the hope of healing or deliverance, that there is a future for you, despite your present. Jesus is saying that many of our problems persist today because the things we know of God are not real to us. They just aren't. That's the problem for us. Unreal things have become real to us, like devices, Instagram, Sports. I mean, like, I, I love watching NCAA basketball. I don't know any of those people. <laughs> unreal things have become real to us, and the real things are, are unreal to us. Um, so 20 years ago, your mom said to you, you're, you're worthless. You're a problem child. You're just too much for me. And you cannot forget that. You have been thinking it's been like a pinball rattling around your brain since then. Even though there's all sorts of evidence in your life up until today, that, that says that's not true. You're not a problem. <laughs> a teacher has told you at some point in your life, you're stupid. You're never going to amount to anything. A coach said you're weak. Um, your high school crush said you're ugly. And people over and over again said, you're just not worth my time and my energy. I, I have nothing for you. And you cannot forget it. You believe that eventually everybody's going to leave you, and yet the Bible is absolutely filled with truth statements about God's love for you, God's faithfulness, God's unwavering commitment, as well as your beauty and your strength and your creativity and your dynamism and your capacities, despite your, even your brokenness. What's true of you today? That's the question Jesus is posing to us. What's governing your heart? What's, what are you being controlled by? Um, what's spiritually real to you? Uh, what do you know, not here, but here, to be true right now? See, God gives us his spirit to help us connect our heads to our hearts, um, to make what's true real. That's what it means for the spirit to be our help. Um, So think about that as we go on. (laughs) Where you lack peace, where you lack joy, where you lack confidence, are you willing to let the spirit of God help you in those places, reveal to you what's actually true? Let's move on to the second thing. Trouble and failure are going to happen. So you need help. <laughs> and I'm just gonna, you're, this is great news, right? Happy Sunday. Trouble and failure are going to happen. So Jesus says in verse 2, uh, they're going to excommunicate you from the synagogues. The time's coming when you're going to face suffering. Um, verse 4, I'm telling you so that when it happens, you're not going to be surprised. And the verse 20, the Greek word here is amen. It means it's hashtag facts. Um, you're going to weep and mourn. Notice two things about these. Jesus doesn't limit those, that bundle of like suffering and loss and things to some. This is not a super spiritual class of martyrs that he's talking to. These are just disciples. 
um, ordinary, everyday. Yeah, there's 12 of them, or there might be more, but just think of yourselves in this boat, which I just find fascinating. I, I've always found this fascinating. So in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says, one of the commissions, you're going to be our witnesses. First to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth, right? And we receive that. Yes, that's us. That word for witness in Greek is actually the word martyria. So to be a disciple is to suffer. That's part of the job. That's number one. It's just part of the deal. Number two, he's just matter of fact about it. It's going to happen. It's not extraordinary. It's just part of life. It's a condition of living in the fallen world. These are the ways it's going to work out for them, and here's the ways it might work out for us. In fact, if you back up in the dialogue a little bit, chapter 15, what you find is, is Jesus says it's part of this ecosystem of Christian faith. Like he says that um, the world hates you because it first hated me. And now that you're associated with me, I mean, do you get this? It's, Christianity is a, is, involves suffering. It just does. One of my favorite passages that brought this home is from 2 Corinthians 4, that passage where it says we're, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And uh, Paul says we're hard-pressed on every side. We're not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, not abandoned. He goes on and on. Um, and I remember reading that in a time in my life. I was just out of college. I was down living in Branson, Missouri. Yeah, quick, how many have been to Branson? Yeah, I know you. So, Shoji Tabuchi and yeah, Dolly Parton. Yeah, ooh, kind of all grimacing like, yeah, I was there. So I graduated college, and I was in a discipleship kind of training school down there, and um, I was facing deep loneliness. I'm not from Missouri. <laughs> I had no connections there. I was facing deep meaning questions. Like, I wasn't sure... I got a degree from a liberal arts college in Tacoma, and like, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, I was uh, far from friendship. I was going through a breakup. I'd just been dumped. So I'm dealing with depression for the first time in my life, really depressed. And I'm a house parent in a boy's home for kids, adolescents, who are dealing with depression, anxiety, anger, and addiction. So that was an interesting time in my life. And uh, I remember lying in my bunk one afternoon, and for the very first time, remember, I, I came to Christ in my 20s. So I'm 20 three or four at this point. I literally had not read the Bible yet. And I, and I came across this passage in 2 Corinthians 4 that I just read. First time in my life, I read this. And I remember receiving such comfort because I, in my suffering, my loneliness, and my failure, I, just, I, I heard for the first time that those were normal. Like that I'm depressed, that's not unusual. I'm not strange. I'm not weird. Something's not wrong with me. That's part of being a person, and, and that might be even part of being in Christ. Um, can, so can we hear that? That when you suffer, when you're abandoned, when you're lonely, when you're in despair, those are words Paul's using. When you're in doubt, when you're in sad, when, you're, when, the death, when death comes to your dreams, all of that stuff, that is part of life in Christ. Jesus doesn't say something's wrong with you. Um, which I'll just say can either be enormously encouraging or can, like at the age of 24, that was enormously encouraging or absolutely terrifying. And here's what I mean by that. I bought my little bookshelf up with me this morning. Um, this is one of my favorite books called The Book of Dead Philosophers by a guy named Simon Critchley. He took like a couple thousand years of old philosophers who've died um, and then talks about how they talk about death. And it's, I keep it bedside because it's just funny and very insightful. He, and it's not a, he's not a Christian, though he has some Christian philosophers in there. But he starts the book out this way. What defines human life in our corner of the planet at this present time is not just the fear of death, 
but an overwhelming terror of annihilation. This is a terror of both the inevitability of our demise with its future prospect of pain and possibly meaningless suffering, as well as the horror of what lies in the grave other than our bodies nailed into a box lowered into the earth to become worm food. We're often, he says, led on, on one hand to deny the fact of death and run headlong, and for death you can just put suffering, loss, all those things, run headlong into the watery pleasures of forgetfulness, intoxication, mindless communication of stuff. Or on the other hand, the terror of annihilation leads us blindly into the belief of ma- in magical forms of salvation and the promise of immortality. What we seem, he says, to seek is either a transitory consolation by accumulating stuff from momentary oblivion or miraculous redemption in the afterlife. So what he, basically what he's saying is we're surprised by suffering. Whether that suffering's physical, emotional, or spiritual, we're terrorized by it. We can't stand it. We're afraid of it. And why? Because of, that it, we were afraid that it might be, like our lives might be meaningless, um, that our lives, our existence might, this life means nothing, or we're afraid of what it holds for us. We can't push through into that because we're afraid of what might happen to us within it, within that experience. And see, Jesus says here very plainly, don't be afraid of it. Don't fall in that trap. And Paul says, hey, death, where's your sting? Uh, He agrees with Jesus. Don't be surprised when things fall apart, when you experience loss and suffering and failure and pain. Instead, acknowledge them and then allow them to be part of the ecosystem in which you live. In fact, if you go further and deeper still, embrace them. And not in a masochistic way. Jesus is not a masochist. He's not up there on the cross, cross like, you know, life of Brian, you know, always look on the bright side of life. He's not, that's not Jesus. He experienced incredible suffering on the cross, and yet he embraced it. He was able to learn from it. And here's what I mean by that. I, I just got this email this week from, um, well, it's a daily email I get um, from Richard Rohr. And uh, in there, he quoted this rabbi, Harold Kushner. Anybody know who Harold Kushner is? He's like a rabbi out in New York, so a couple of us know who he is. And Here's what he says. Here's Kushner. He says, The conventional explanation that God sends us a burden because God knows that we're strong enough to handle it is all wrong. Fate, or you might say that um, this this loss, uh, not God, or I'm sorry, fate, you might say like living in a fallen world sends us the problem. And when we try to deal with it, um, we find out that we're not strong, we're weak, we get tired, we get angry, we get overwhelmed, we reach the limits of our own strength, uh, and then something unexpected happens. Here's Kushner. We find reinforcement coming from a source outside ourselves. In, in, the, in, the, in the knowledge that we're not alone, that God's on our side, we manage to go on. Like Jacob in the Bible, like every one of us at one time or another, you faced a scary situation, you prayed for help, and you found you were helped. You were stronger and able to handle it than you ever thought you could have on your own. In, in other words, in your desperation, you opened your heart, and what happened? You didn't get the miracle. <laughs> but, but you discovered people around you, God on your side, and the strength within you to endure the tragedy. I, th- I just think that's amazing. Like, if suffering is d- discovering, as I've heard somebody say it, we're just not in control, <laughs> if that's actually suffering then you can see why some form of suffering, Jesus says, 
is absolutely necessary in order to teach you that you, you have to live beyond the illusion that you're your own God, that you're in control of your own life, and give that back to God, and then become a usable instrument in God's hands, and share your power with God. <laughs> Say, God, I, I, I want to give you, I want to give you my freedom, I want to give you my life, I, wanna, I just give that up. That's what Jesus is praying in the garden, not my will, but your will, God. I release that to you. Jesus is inviting us to develop that art of losing, <laughs> like calling us toward an embrace of loss, suffering, weakness, because that opens us up to God and God's help and always leads us back to renewal, okay? So that's number two. Uh, There will be loss and suffering. Happy Sunday. (laughs) Here's the last one. I'll be brief and we'll go to communion. Hopefully a little more encouraging. Joy will be discovered through sorrow. So Jesus gives this very vivid illustration of childbirth at the very end of the passage I read. That does a tremendous amount of work for him. And so, like a lot of you, I had a chance to be a part of the birth of my own children um, twice now. And many of you, like certainly the moms in the room, but the dads who have two and uncles and grandfathers, like those are unforgettable days, right? Like those are etched in your memory. And if you're like me to see your wife or your, your sister or your aunt go through what Jesus is talking about, I mean, like, there's something about that that's very vivid and, and visceral. But we have to keep this one thing in mind, that Jesus is speaking not to 21st century readers. Uh, he's speaking, as I heard somebody else say, B.E. So before epidurals, like before anesthetics in hospitals and modern medicine, like to be blunt, labor and childbirth in Jesus' day was much, much, much more painful than today. I know for a lot of you, you're saying, wait, I, that was a lot of pain. Yeah, but just think of their context, like in a home with no help other than just maybe the, um, the midwife with you and your, your husband trying to fumble through it, which I think is just a, makes this illustration so fascinating because Jesus is affirming that labor is painful, that childbirth is difficult both then and now, that, that pain, loss, grief are normal. It's just part of being human. It's a gift. I, think, I don't think anybody who has given birth to a child say, well, I, I just want the child, but no, maybe. <laughs> There's something in that that feels like part of the gift, right? But notice, Jesus says when the child's born, he doesn't say uh, that the mother's pain disappears. He doesn't say that. Look at what he says. And I, and I got to see Elizabeth go through this. Uh, I could see she was in incredible distress after our kids were born exhausted from the experience, in tremendous discomfort. Everything wasn't fine, <laughs> suddenly. Um, and Jesus knows that. He, he doesn't say the pain disappears. He says the child makes her forget her pain, even if momentarily the child overwhelms the pain. I just think that's amazing. The child, if you can't hear the gospel in this, wow, just listen. The child overshadows the pain which is to say that though her body's in pain, the joy of seeing and holding this child grabs her mind and her heart so much so that she's overtaken by the pain and freed, even if, like I said momentarily, from the experience of that pain, the experience of joy. That's joy. So Jesus is saying one of the greatest secrets of faithfulness, of longevity in life, is found in this illustration, that that Christian joy is just like that. You can you can discover it only through 
your experience of pain and sorrow and loss. But it can coexist with pain and sorrow and loss. They, they're not exclusive of each other. They overlap, in fact. The pain is there. The, uh, the need for rest is there. The need for healing is there. The need for reconciliation is there. But the child is there too. And the child, at least in these first moments of life together, as they look in each other's eyes and embrace, so fills you with joy. The gospel so fills you with joy when you, let it, when you look into it and its mysteries and its, its beauty that, you are, that it, your pain is overcome by the gospel. You're not controlled by the pain of life. You're, you're not, you don't sing in despair of the pain of life. You'll have the gospel to saturate your life. Jesus is saying that is Christi- that's Christianity in a nutshell, the great promise of life in Christ. It means that you have sorrow, grief, loss. You're very much in touch with that, and yet there's joy in it. Like, the sorrow is not gone. You've looked into the eyes of Christ, who is a child with us, uh, not as a sorrowless person, but a person who's so filled with joy, you can live with that sorrow. Um. Joy in the midst of sorrow. This is why Paul says in Philippians that joy is not circumstantial. It never is. Not true joy. Delight yourselves in God, he says in Philippians. Find your joy in him at all times, no matter the circumstance. Indeed, Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. Joy is uncircumstantial. I, don't, I know I will live when things are difficult. I know I will live when things are prosperous. Circumstances will not dictate my joy. Only, only God does. Only my experience of God, and thus I'm ready for anything and everything. Bring it on. Bring it on. Joy and sorrow can overlap. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so here's the invitation for us this morning. Uh, I'll invite our worship team back up. I want to invite us as we're, we're preparing our hearts to come to the table this morning, communion. Maybe even just reflect with me for a moment. Close your eyes, if you would, um, and just sit quietly where you're at. Where are you uh, experiencing sadness right now? Where is, is there any sorrow in your life? Might be a relationship that's not where it needs to be or you hope it would be. It might be, I mentioned the death of a dream. You have dreams and desires, you put those before God and that you're not seeing anything happen. Where is the sadness and loss in your life? Jesus has told us he brings us help to meet us in our sorrow. Jesus has told us that alongside that sorrow, there will be joy, who is him, himself, Christ, with us. Um, So my prayer for us this morning, and I will pray this, is that Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, might meet us personally in our sorrow with a deep sense of his joy. We have an encounter with God as we come to
this table. Let me pray. God, we come to you as a vulnerable child. He was born to live with us, to meet us in our pain. And we come to you as an innocent man who died for us to bear our pain on the cross. We come to you maybe knowing some things about you in our heads, but desperate to have a sense of those things in our hearts. We come to you with tremendous loss. And we express a desire to experience your joy. So God, make this time now as we respond a time filled with your joy. Which again, we thank you, does not have to mean we have to put on a smiley face that we can come bring our sorrow to this table this morning. We thank you for that promise. In Christ's name, amen.